This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to our number two of the 2017 finale for the Talk of Fame Network. Wow. Did this year go by quickly? Doesn't seem like it was that long ago. We were talking possible Super Bowl for the Giants. And it doesn't matter which one you're talking about. San Francisco, New York, they both stunk this year. But you know what? We didn't and we won't because we're not going quietly into the night. No siree. We've got Jay Paris, the author of Rams, Games of Their Lives, coming up this hour, along with Hall of Fame semifinalist Steve Atwater, who was one of the game's biggest hitters, of course. Now, Goose, you, you go to the movies, right? You went on Christmas Day, right? Yes, sir. Okay, there's a movie out right now called The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman. Have you seen it? Uh, no, not yet. Okay, well, I haven't either. But I started wondering, follow me here, Goose, if you can, if you, if you were going to film The NFL's Greatest Showman, The NFL's Greatest Showman, no, Ron, not The Greatest Snowman, The Greatest <laughs> Showman, and it could include anyone, Goose, from the past or present, who would it star? Well, first off, let me clarify one thing. We weren't talking about a possible Super Bowl for the Giants last summer. Maybe you, you. and Harry Myers were, but we, Ron and I, were, we were on other bandwagons that were crashing. Right you are, Gooseman. Secondly, greatest showman would have to be Joe Namath. White shoe, shaggy hair, full man shoe, mink coat. He introduced Madison Avenue to the NFL. Wow. Okay, Ronnie, can you top that? You've been called here to do the NFL's greatest showman, too. I can. So you have a suggestion who's going to play the lead here? Who do you want to suggest? Wahoo McDaniels, the great <laughs> linebacker from the Jets. <laughs> also the great wrestler who used to wear the full Indian headdress when he would come into the ring, and he would wear it in the locker room. and do the, he, would, he would do a war dance and lead those Jets on the field. Wahoo McDaniels, that's a showman. Wahoo-wah. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with one of my and our favorite interviews. It'd be Brett Favre. I mean, he wasn't the game's greatest quarterback, but I tell you what, he was one of them, and he was one of the most entertaining, as you guys know. You were never sure what was going to happen when you dropped back to throw, and I guess we should have known Goose. Remember what happened on his first NFL pass? Yep. It, it was complete, but it was to himself. And when we had him on our broadcast, remember what he said? Is anybody surprised? <laughs> the master of the obvious. <laughs> oh, it was great. I loved watching him. Well, anyway, speaking of showmen, we have one coming up. It's writer and author Jay Parentheses Paris. You're going to talk about those Rambos that just won't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. In the first hour, we addressed Christmas gifts you should return. Well, now I want to mention a gift that if you don't have, you should. And if you do have it, you should keep it. And that's a copy of the book, <laughs> Game of My Life Rams, by a longtime friend of the show, and that's Jay Parentheses Bubba Paris. I've known Jay for years because he covered the Chargers when they were in San Diego, and he was my favorite point guard when we played pickup basketball at UCSD <laughs> during the summer. Remember that, Bubba? That was you were you you were never not open, Clark. You were always open. <laughs> Hands always up, up. elbows yeah, above the shoulders. Him. Please, still <laughs> am. Well, now of course Jay's written Game of My Life Rams were some of the biggest and best Rams either in St. Louis or L.A. or both are feeding him the ball as well as the stories of their most memorable 
games, and Jay is here to tell us about it. Bubba, thanks so much for joining us. First question, which was your favorite story? I guess what I'm saying is when you finish talking to someone, which was the story you couldn't wait to sit down and write? Boy, you know, thanks for having me on, Goose. Thanks, Clark. It, it's almost like asking which, which of your kids is your favorite one. You know, it's kind of one of those deals. But so which is? Which know, one's your favorite kid? <laughs> uh, that's Connor. Don't tell Phyllis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but some guys, you get that return phone call, and, you know, you, you, you get goosebumps, or you, your hair would stand up when Roman Gabriel's calling you back, or, or Jack Youngblood, or Kurt Warner, any of those guys. But I, I love the Youngblood story. And it's, uh, you know, I let them pick their favorite game or most significant game, really, which is a little surprising. Some of their selections, you'd think it'd be a, a big win or, or something like that. The Hall of Famer Tom Mack, he picked that 1974 uh, conference title loss to the Minnesota Vikings when he was called for uh, illegal procedure. Uh, <laughs> Alan Page made him flinch. Mack swears to his grave that he never moved. They, the ball went from the one-yard line to the six-yard line. Next, pa- uh, next pass deflected intercepted to turn the whole game around. Tom Mack is still going to dinner on that game all these years later. But to have Jack Youngblood talk about, of course, playing in the Super Bowl, but what a lot of people didn't know is that he broke that leg two games earlier uh, in the divisional playoff game, 1979, uh, against the Dallas Cowboys. Now, you got to remember, the Rams had lost three straight conference title games. They had lost four five conference title games. So when Youngblood broke his leg and the, the doctor comes back and says, uh, Captain Blood, it's broke, and he said, Dad, coming, I could have told you that. He wasn't going to come out of that game, not with all that heartache that they had had. So they, uh, he, he tells the doctor, uh, Dr. Shields, to tape it up. And the doctor says, I can't do it. He says, tape it up. And he says, I can't do it, Jack. So now uh, Jack's, you know, his veins are sticking out. And you're thinking a doctor can't go, go against that oath of, of sending somebody in with a broken leg. The doctor finally says, I can't do it because I don't know how to do it. So so he got the assistant trainer to tape up his leg, and he goes back in there, and he said, uh, Coach Malavese and the rest of the guys, you know, they trusted him enough that he wasn't going to go up there and screw everything up. So they let him go. He played that week. He played the next week when they shut out the Buccaneers 9 nothing in the NFC title game. Then, of course, he played in that great Super Bowl fourteen where the Rams were leading going into the fourth quarter and didn't play. What will shock both of you guys is that he played the following week in the Pro Bowl with a broken leg. Oh. <laughs> and, and <laughs> I go, Jack, what are you doing? He goes, well, hell, I figured if I danced around out there a little bit, I wasn't going to turn down a trip to Hawaii. You know, he's an old Southern boy. So he played in the Pro Bowl with a broken leg, and we know now, the guys wave their fingers with a or wave a hand with a with a broken fingernail, if you will. So you know that story really stood out. But while I had those guys tell me their favorite game, they had to give me a couple more different stories, a couple good ones. And Jacks, of course, was when he was a stud at the University of Florida. You know, maybe the greatest defensive player to to be a Gator. And he would talk about his senior year at uh, practice, and they bring out this big old tin tub that looked like it was off a chuck wagon from a, a Western movie or something. And the, ga- the guys would gather around and pass this tin cup around because they didn't have a lot of cups, he said. So one tin cup, and they drink this stuff. And then one day it would taste like milk. One day it would be sweet. One day it would be sour. It would, he said it was terrible, but they were told because of the humidity and stuff, if they drink this stuff, 
they wouldn't have cramps and they could get back and they could play better and they could lead the Gators to victory. Well, of course, that strange brew that they had to drink every day was the uh, makings of Gatorade, which was uh, invented by a couple of Florida trainers. And, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> Youngblood says this day, hey, look, there was only 50 of us. If they would have gave us one share, we'd all be rich today. So Jack <laughs> yeah. Youngblood, the guinea pig, and Jack Youngblood playing in the Pro Bowl with a broken leg. Jay, did you talk to my all-time favorite Ram, the Catawba Claw? You know, I, he, he oh. didn't make it, darn it. He wasn't in the book. Uh, well, you know, there's a lot of guys in a 71-year history, and the only you know team to win it in three different cities, St. Louis, Cleveland, and Los Angeles, to win an NFL title. Uh, I didn't get him. You know, we only had 20, Goose. I'm sorry. Hey, I was kidding. I was kidding. Okay. <laughs> okay. The real question. Did you grow up a Rams fan, and was this a, a labor of love? I know you did one of the Chargers, too, but which, which team was this a labor of love for you? Yeah, I, I was an LA fan. You know, both my moms are both my mom and dad are from the South. My mom's from Mississippi, and my dad's from South Central Los Angeles. So, uh, with that background, uh, I went to a lot of Ram games, and, and my uh, uncle was in the Marines. If you guys can believe this, when he was in the Marines, if he showed up in full uniform, you got in for fifty cents. And not only did you get in for fifty cents, but you could bring in six kids with you. And I was often one of those kids that got to tag along. You know, I always thought my uncle was building this great relationship with me. He was just trying to get the hall pass from the wife to go drink a beer and watch football, please. But, you know, I didn't know that. So for years and years, we would drive up to the Coliseum. And being a kid, and you drive up to the Coliseum, and you look up at the torch. I mean, it's like looking up Jack and the Beanstalk or something. This thing's it's 500 feet high, you're thinking. You know, it's just so cool. And then all those years of, in my youth of listening to Dick Emberg, uh, rest his soul, and he was so kind to do the forward of this book. But Dick Inberg was the announcer from 1966 to 1977. So we'd go to the games with my uncle, we'd listen to Dick Inberg, and then when you turn in Exposition Park and you go into that great stadium, who's had two Olympics and the first Super Bowl, and JFK got the Democratic nomination there. I mean, just the history of the Coliseum, it was overwhelming. So, yes, I covered the Chargers for 20 years, but, you know, the first score I always checked Sunday night, no matter what, was the Rams score. So when word came back that they were going to come back, you know, that's 20 years, that's two-plus decades of these fans, you know, maybe not knowing some of the history, the newer guys. So gave me a, a chance to connect not only with these uh, these uh, heroes of my past, if you will, but to connect with my child life as well. We're speaking with Jay Paris, author of Game of My Life, Rams. You can find it in your nearest bookstore, and you can find us, the Talk of Fame Network, on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And you know what? You can find Jay on the Internet with photos of some of these Rams, including current coach Sean McVay. That was a pretty cool photo, Jay, I thought. Um, and he interviewed scores of famous Rams, including guys like Jack Youngblood, as you mentioned, Roman Gabriel, Kurt Warner, Dickerson, I'll name some of them, but not all of them. My question to you, Jay, is who was, who was your favorite storyteller? I mean, what was the story that you got that you never expected? I mean, something you heard, you went, holy cow, I didn't know it, never heard that, um, I never expected it. Well, you know, sticking with your Hall of Fame guys, Tom Mack was a tight end at Michigan. He played about one or two games this first year because there was a reason for it. He had no hands. He couldn't catch. The coach finally said to him, hey, you want to play a little more? He goes, yeah, I'll play. And play tackle or play guard. And, and he went on to that Hall of Fame career. And he went on to uh, being a nuclear engineer, helped build the Palo Verde a nuclear plant in Phoenix. 
I didn't know, and he said uh, he worked for Beckel Corporation during the offseason, but he could never tell anybody he was a football player because they thought this stereotype of a, a football guy being a dumb old guy, and here he is, you know, putting the wires together for a, a nuclear fusion, if you will. But Mike Lansford, the barefooted kicker, he could spin it. Of course, we know the story. He was a 12th-round pick, gets cut by the Giants, and uh, special teams coach Bill Belichick at the time can't kick worth a lick. Gets uh, cut by two other teams, 49ers, Raiders. He still keeps kicking. He still keeps kicking. Wow. Hey, uh, Jay, we've got to Mike Lansford and barefoot it to our next commercial. So thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with those book sales, especially now that you've got the Rams in the playoffs. Hey, i got another hour of material here. That's it? All right. We'll catch up <laughs> next time, I guess. <laughs> thanks, you guys. got it, Jay. Thank you. Okay. Cheers. Thanks, Jay. That was Jay Paris, author of Game of My Life Rams. Up next, we're going to go from L.A. to the XFL. Hear me, XFL. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, on the heels of that Jay Paris interview, I want to stay on the West Coast for a moment, guys. And, and that's because... We should acknowledge the passing of one of the greats and someone that Jay mentioned that was Hall of Fame broadcaster Dick Enberg, who passed away unexpected last week at the age of 82. Now, I, I know we've all come across him in our careers, as Jay did. And, and I don't know, Ron, that, that, that there were better guys in the business. There might have been better broadcasters, but I'm not sure there were better guys. No, completely true. A very, very nice man. Uh, we should all be as nice as Dick Enberg. You know, he dreamed of becoming an amazing baseball player, and he ended up getting to the big leagues in the press box. Uh, to which I'm sure Dick Ember would say, oh, my. <laughs> yeah, when I was covering baseball in Kansas City in the 70s and 80s, you know, I saw Dick quite a bit because he was doing the play-by-play for the California Angels. And he also did uh, WCT tennis in Kansas City back then. So I actually mm-hmm. saw quite a bit of him. And since we were both from Detroit, we had a common bond. And he was such an easy guy to talk to, never put on airs, never took himself too seriously. Goose, is that WCT tennis team? Was that Lamar Hunt? Yes. That's why I was in wow. Kansas City. Hey, Ron, um, yep. aside from his signature, oh, my, I mean, what is your enduring memory of Dick? Well, I'll tell you, the one that's going to stick with me now is the most recent one I have, which is, you know, the biggest game he ever called was the UCLA-Houston uh, game when the Big E, Elvin Hayes, played Lou Alcindor, later right. on his cream with Jabbar in the Astrodome. Uh, the last broadcast he taped was done a week ago with Jim Nance in Houston. It was a recollection of that game's 50th anniversary. Now, to me, that's coming about as full circle as a man can come. And what do you think he ends with? Oh, my. Yeah. Goose, what do you think his legacy is? Well, he could handle the microphone for any sport and make you feel smarter for listening. You know, we all have egos, but his ego never came across either on the air or in person. Just a real Mm -hmm. gentleman. Yeah. Well, anyway, Dick Enberg gone too soon. The age of 82 and, and already missed. I said uh, earlier that we were going to talk XFL, and you know what? We are. We're going to do it now. Um, that's something else that apparently is missed because all of a sudden, goose, there's talk of an XFL revival, honestly. I mean, maybe remember it, maybe don't, but it debuted in 2001 and was everything the NFL was not. It was irreverent. It was edgy, cutting edge, and sometimes downright loony. But it disappeared, really, as soon as it debuted. And, and now, all of a sudden, there's talk that, Vince McMahon, who's the founder of the XFL, has talked that he's going to announce a revival. Goose, 
You believe it? I hope so. You know, I've long felt there was a spot in the calendar for a spring league, and I covered the first XFL game ever played in Las Vegas, and they really had some terrific ideas. You know, they mic'd players, and they took cameras places where NFL cameras would never go, like the huddle. You know, they put the game in the lap of the fans, and some of those ideas were actually adopted by the NFL. But if he's got to make it work this go-around, he's going to have to get some named quarterbacks. You know, not the Bradys and the Roethlisbergers, but maybe some of the great college quarterbacks who, who weren't built for the NFL game, like Heisman Trophy winners, Tim Tebow, Johnny Manziel, Danny Werfel, Jason White, just some names that fans know. Jamarcus Russell? You can have him. Uh, he's right. I don't think so. He's right. <laughs> he fit right into the XFL, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, Ron, you want to see a comeback? Yeah, I do, because uh, I'll tell you one thing. I, I can guarantee you that Vince McMahon will know what a catch is. <laughs> and and maybe he'll bring back one of our personal favorites and the world's favorites. He hate me, but we love he. Rod Smart. <laughs> of the show. Yeah. I know what a catch is. It's something that Jamarcus Russell's receivers don't do because the ball <laughs> yeah. is over their head. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, I've heard some people say, you know, the time is right, especially in the age of Donald Trump, because he's a guy, our president, who basically is called the NFL wimps for trying to protect players. So, Goose, is the time right? If you remember, this was the, the league and the owner that what the the coin toss was replaced by the scrum, where two guys <laughs> yeah. beat each other up for football. So, yeah. Like and rugby. I, I, I could see the XFL having more fun with the game. Instead of instant replay, open the phone lines for 60 seconds and let the fans vote. This, this isn't going to be traditional football the way we've always known it. Like I said, I think I like the XFL concept the first time around. They just have some recognizable names to sustain fan interest, and they will have some wild and crazy things out there. Hey, Ron, I like that rule suggestion for the NFL. Open the phone lines for 60 minutes, 60 seconds. I mean, let the fans vote. Oh, yeah. Well, that getting was... into Alberta River on. Exactly. No, that was the Mike Holmgren rule. Uh, 50 guys in a bar. 50 guys in a bar think it's a catch, it's a catch. If they don't, it's not. And you could see Vince McMahon open it up. It would be a 900 number. It costs you 995 or something to call. But, you know, why not? The XFL, (laughs) full of crazy ideas. I love, by the way, the scrum rather than the coin toss. Yeah, me too. Well, here's the question, Ron, and and, and it's a serious one. But if it failed once, why should it make it again? And and the follow-up to that is if it's going to come back, what needs to change to make sure it stays this time around? Well, I think, you know, there's just this growing number of endless cable networks that all need programming. So that gives them instantaneously some place to put their games uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and some sort of financial base uh, that will pr- probably be a little wider than it was before. And then this time they're going to need some fiscal restraints, you know, which didn't really exist uh, as tightly as they should have the first time. You know, the one problem they have is uh, – they won't be able to go to Vegas this time, or maybe they can go there and beat the Raiders there. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be perfect. <laughs> Might as well. Everyone's beating the Raiders these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think um, I do think it's all about TV programming. Somebody's going to want to put this on the air. You know, NBC was the, the TV partner last time. Somebody's going to want to put this on the air. It's got to be better than some of that early season baseball. Uh, and I do think if they get the right TV partner. And the reason it failed last time, they had all kinds of mechanical difficulties. They, the the right. second game of the, of the season, they couldn't get on the air. Uh, they got to make sure they got their act ready to go when the league starts this time. But, again, I do think there's a place for it. I've always thought there was a place for spring football. They're just going to have to need some names and the right cities, obviously. But, but Goose, you wouldn't need to have a, a network, would you? I mean, you've got so many 
outlet to Netflix, HBO, Showtime. You could yeah. put it anywhere, right? And people you could find stream it. it. You could, you'd find somebody to stream it. Netflix, uh, somebody would stream it for you. And, and that's where it's going anyway. Cable's positive. Bruce, do, you, do you think the NFL, if this did come back, the NFL would perceive it as a legitimate threat? Uh, I think the NFL would probably walk around because they got to find some place to develop quarterbacks because the NFL is doing a very poor job of developing young quarterbacks. Tommy Maddox, okay. remember, went and uh, left the XFL and went to take the Steelers to the division title. Yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Um, well, as I mentioned earlier about Vince McMahon, uh, who's the founder of the XFL, um, he said about a week ago, I think, uh, through a spokesman, that he has nothing to say on this subject, quote, at this time, unquote. And when I hear that, Goose, it sure sounds like he will at some point, and maybe sometime soon, and, and the rumor saying as early as January. Could you expect that or suspect that something as early as January could come out from Vince McMahon's office saying, you know what, we're putting this thing back together again. No, too soon. If this idea has any legs, it'll be up and running at 20 on 19. And beyond that, it's a horse not worth betting on. Well, I disagree. I think uh, knowing Vince McMahon's uh, showmanship, what's the time to do it? Super Bowl in Minnesota when everyone is freezing their ass off and just wants to be inside anyway. Big press right. conference, big party. Couple Wahoo McDaniel shows up. Let's do it, Goose. One other question for you: How do you explain the sort of the um, the lasting impact of that? Because as you know, one of our most viewed sites on the Talk of Fame Network and TalkofFameNetwork dot com is an XFL poll we had, and and we've had millions. I mean, what is it? Three and a half, four million people who viewed that thing. Why the interest in a defunct league? Because ESPN did a great, a terrific thirty for thirty on the XFL, and every time that they they show that, our numbers spike. And it was a fun league. The Rod Smarts, the nicknames, put the you know put your nickname on your jersey or whatever you want. It was it was a fun concept, and it made football. Well, I'll tell you something in some place else where our numbers spike every time we have Doctor Data on. Our numbers spike. That's right, Doctor Data, aka Rick Goslin and Gooseman. The floor is yours here for the last time in 2017. Where are you going? And the top two seeds in the NFC playoff bracket belong to the Minnesota Vikings and the Philadelphia Eagles, but does either have a chance at a Lombardi trophy playing their second option at the quarterback position? The Vikings were banking on Sam Bradford carrying their playoff flag. He started the opener, passed for 346 yards and three touchdowns in a thrashing of the New Orleans Saints, but he suffered a knee injury that day, forcing him to vacate the lineup and turn the offensive reins over to Case Keenum. The Eagles were banking on Carson Wentz carrying their playoff flag. He was a leading MVP candidate through the first 13 games with a league-leading 33 touchdowns. But he also suffered a knee injury in that 13th game, ending his season. And now the Philadelphia offense is in the hands of Nick Foles. But don't automatically discount the chances of either team. Since 2000, four NFL teams have reached the Super Bowl with a quarterback who was not their opening day starter. And two of those teams went on to win Lombardi trophies. In 2000, Tony Banks started the season at quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens. But Trent Dilfer finished it with a Super Bowl victory. In 2001, Drew Bledsoe started the season at quarterback for the New England Patriots. But Tom Brady finished it with a Super Bowl victory. In 2003, Rodney Pete started at quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. But Jake DeLome finished it with a heartbreaking Super Bowl loss to the Patriots on a last-second field goal. And in 2012, Alex Smith started the season at quarterback for the 49ers, but Colin Kaepernick finished it with a Super Bowl loss to the Ravens, despite Kaepernick passing for 300 yards and rushing for 65 more. So don't sell the Eagles and Vikings short. It's a team game. 
And sometimes a team is good enough to carry a quarterback. Well, Gooseman, I won't sell him short, uh, but if I'm a betting man, I'm betting on Case Keenum. Which one of those guys do you like best? I like Keenum because he's, he's done over the long haul. He's had the ups and downs. Uh, we saw one one positive game from Foles, one, one negative game from Foles. I think if he had played six, eight, ten weeks like Keenum has, I think he'd be far ready for the playoffs. Hey, Gooseman, I automatically sell dome team short when they have to go outside for conference championship games. They just don't win there. So to me, it's more about staff than it is about the quarterback. What do you have yeah. to say? Yeah, but you look at the two dome teams, Minnesota and New Orleans, they're now weatherproof. They run the ball and play defense, so I like their chances better than I have in the past. Okay. Well, I like our chances going to break because we're doing that right now. Up next, Hall of Fame semifinalist, Steve Atwater. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. It was just a couple of years ago that we visited with former Denver safety Steve Atwater. Steve, as you probably know, is one of 27 semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And unlike Leroy Butler, whom we had in the first hour of this program, He's been a finalist before. In fact, he was a finalist in 2016. An eight-time Pro Bowler, three-time All-Pro, two-time Super Bowl champion, and an all-decade choice. Steve is certainly worthy of Canton, and maybe, just maybe, this is his year. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be here and honored. Steve, I didn't mention that you're also a member of the Broncos Ring of Honor. Of all those accolades, accolades that I just mentioned, which is the most significant to you? Well, uh, to be honest with you, um, I'll probably say the Ring of Fame just because that kind of uh, encompasses all of the rest of them. It encompasses uh, the 10 years that I played here in Denver, uh, the two Super Bowls that we won, the, the Pro Bowls, the eight Pro Bowls, the All Pros, all that is kind of encapsulated in that Ring of Fame honor. So I have to say, up to this point, that is most definitely the the uh, most special. Now, my, my, my best moment as a player was winning our first Super Bowl. Um, watching John Mobley uh, on the fourth down play, knock down that pass from Brett Favre to Mark Schmurer. And, you know, I looked up at the clock uh, and realized that we won, and we, you know, we're going to be the world champions. I still, to this day, I get chills all my arms and all over my body just from uh, going back to that moment. It was such a special moment um, for me and for all of our teammates and all the Broncos fans who have been waiting for years and years for us to finally get over that hump. Steve, you kind of bent this Hall of Fame thing a little bit. In 2016, you were a finalist, and, and, and you didn't get in. Um, how did you deal with that disappointment, and how difficult was it for you? Well, I mean, it was disappointing. I was certainly extremely happy to uh, be in the room with the with the finalists, though. Um, but, um, you know, I didn't, didn't go any further than that. Uh, and got a chance to at least see what that was like to be a finalist, uh, but certainly uh, I'm hoping I can 
one day get that knock and this uh, Mr. Baker, and this is a, it's a positive knock, and he's able to tell me something good versus uh, hey Steve, uh, you know you came close but you didn't make it. So um, that, that that would be the really the the pinnacle of of my career. Steve, I asked um, Roy Butler this earlier, and I'll ask you the same question. What separates you as a safety, and what separates you as a Hall of Fame candidate from the other safeties and defensive backs? Well, um, I mean, I have to say that all the guys on the list, I mean, you can, you can probably pick one, you know, uh, except for a couple of guys. You know, except I would say Ed Reed. He's not even on the list yet. But um, I think you can pick any of those guys and, and say, all right, from his play on the field, you know, what he contributed to the team, all that. Uh, I don't think you can go wrong picking anybody, to be honest with you. So, I, I mean, to say that, I'm more deserving than some of the other guys. That's just difficult for me to say. Uh, what I can say, though, that I, I know that I know how much time I put into it. Uh, not saying the other guys didn't. Uh, I don't know what their work ethic was like, what their habits were like. Uh, I know that I, I laid it on the line every football game and practice, and um, I tried to give our the young players on our team something to emulate you know I, I came out and i worked hard and you know we as a team me and the other leaders on our team expected that from our younger guys so i think that set in motion a culture of uh of excellence uh, you know in the way you prepare and also going out and playing the game so um and then also just being productive on the field uh you know Doing, doing everything I can to get to the ball to make a play. Um, being a leader on the field, being unselfish, uh, those are all some of the traits that I think I had and I would imagine a lot of the other players had those, those same traits. I don't know, though. I didn't play with them. But, um, you know, again, I, I, it's, it's difficult for me to see why you shouldn't pick somebody else. Most of them are just saying, "Hey, um, I think I'm one of the one of the great players that has that have played this game, and uh, you know, it would be a, an extreme honor to finally be recognized for that." See, Steve, now you know what it's like to sit in a room with me and Goose and have to do this. It's not easy to. We know there's more guys than there are seats, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, the, yeah, exactly. I can I can't imagine how difficult that must be for you guys. And you know, you you got so many people, and you want everybody to get in, but everybody can't get in, you know. So um, yeah, I, I empathize with you guys in that regard because uh, you know I wouldn't want to want to have that job and then having to convince other people because you know I think uh, when certain media members have seen players play, they tend to have a kind of a favorite for whatever reason. You know, they may like the person's style of play and, you know, somebody else may like another person's style of play that's, you know, quite different. Sure. But both players are quite effective. Do you think your chances uh, have been enhanced at all by the induction of Kenny Easley, uh, who's a guy that Goose and I uh, we're really pushing for for a long time. You know, he was out. It was 19 years before the last safety got in. Do you think his enshrinement? Oh, you? absolutely, absolutely. I think that that helped all the safeties, uh, me me included. It helped our chances. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. We'll have to wait and see with that. <laughs> but um, I certainly think that. Uh, because he was, uh, you know, finally recognized, and when he got up there, I was I was there when he got inducted uh, back in back in um, in August, and it was uh, it, it, before the well for the speech, 
And, you know, he mentioned all the safeties who he feels has been waiting a long time, and I think that caught a lot of people's attention and may, may have been a bit surprised that he was that well-connected in, in terms of, uh, you know, feeling the plight for all of the safeties. Uh, he... Uh, he's been waiting for a long time. He's been certainly deserving, and I know his career was cut short uh, because of uh, you know because of the uh, issues. Um, you know, he had some issues with the team too because of that with the Seahawks, and fortunately they're back in a good place right now. But yeah, him being inducted, I think, just made a made that light shine a little bit brighter, uh, and made people kind of dig under the hood a little bit and say, "Hey, what's what's going on with the safety position? Why why are they underrepresented? Why hasn't the safety been uh, picked in this long of a period of time?" So um, yeah, and hopefully, you know, hopefully uh, a few more guys will, will get in there and, and kind of uh, even up the numbers a little bit. Yeah, that's the, the the problem that that we have at that position. Paul Kraus intercepted more passes than any player in history, probably record that'll never be broken. It took him fourteen years. Paul Kraus, Minnesota Vikings. Oh right, right. Oh yeah, Paul Kraus. Okay. Yeah. It took him fourteen years to get in, and every time his name came up, they said, "Well, he had all these interceptions, but when you turn the tape on, you can't see him. He didn't make any tackles." Now they look at Steve Adler and say <laughs> he was a great you know box safety, but where are the interceptions? They want they mm-hmm. want the, a guy that intercepted eighty passes and made a thousand tackles, <laughs> and and that guy doesn't exist, and that's that's right. one of the problems with the safety position. When you when you look at a safety, what does a Hall of Fame safety look like in your eyes? Well, in my eyes, the Hall of Fame safety is a person who doesn't make a ton of mistakes on the field, a guy who um, is a leader. One of the leaders on the team, if not the leader on on the on the defensive unit, um, is not out of place. Many times, when you look on, you turn on the film, you see: All right, is he supposed to be in the middle of the field? Is he getting beat in the middle of the field when his responsibility is to take away the middle of the field? Uh, the great safeties, I think, are all. You know, going up in the middle of the field and a guy jumping over him and catching the ball for a touchdown. Also being that last line of defense, uh, when a guy breaks through the line of scrimmage, he's able to either hold off uh, the blockers enough time for his his, uh, his his other defenders to get to the ball carrier and also make those tackles uh, when he's, just, again, that last line of defense and, you know, got to make that tackle or it's a touchdown, he makes uh, many more than he, than he doesn't make. Uh, and just uh, you know, being heavily involved in, in the game. I mean, when when, when receivers throw the ball, uh, the, the the safety is there, almost right upon uh, the receiver catching the ball, making delivering solid hits. Uh, nowadays, not to the head. <laughs> Back in my day, we 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 that was kind of a strategy, but you know, we of course didn't know. The repercussions, uh, the, the the dangers of that, um, but you know now I still like to see that in safeties today, though. Solid body on body contact, not you know not in the head area, but up high and and, and not going for the knees. Uh, that's, that's what I like to see. Um, and just again, just knowing that hey, this guy's on the field and he's a force, and and the opponents respect him. 
That, of course, was so much of your game, Steve, you know, being a force in the middle of the field. Uh, and there were other players. Easily was certainly one of those guys when I was out with the Raiders uh, when Kenny was playing. And, and people didn't want to run across the middle of the field if Kenny Easley was out there or, or when you were out there. That's kind of been taken away uh, to a great extent. And I think it's allowed for a lot more what Goose and I call his phony passing numbers. Does it bother you uh, to watch today's game and see these receivers just running free through the middle of the defense because nobody can touch them? You know what? Uh, it does. At the same time, it doesn't. It does because, you know, I think about the times when I played and I looked like that was a form of disrespect. If you run right through here, you know I'm right here. And, uh, you know, that I can really, you know, go up and give you a nice, a nice hit. Uh, well, it's disrespectful. So, but, but nowadays, I, the way I, I, I do kind of understand, I kind of like it is because, you know, many times guys have a hard time adjusting from, you know, hitting in the head area to, you know, in the chest area to below the waist and they end up going head to head and, uh, have hitting defenseless receivers. And uh, I, I don't think that can continue to go on um, if this game is going to be around for, for the next 50 to 100 years. Uh, I think that we have to find ways to make the game safer for guys once they're done playing football. And I think that uh, that's really the reason why it's like that. And that's why I do like it. I like, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily like to see it, but I like the, the final outcome. The guys. When uh, when they get done playing playing the game, they'll still uh, be healthy, fairly healthy, and uh, you know not have as many issues as as they've had in the past. Steve, we heard about this from the Denver fan base on an annual basis. Is there a bias against the Broncos? Do you think? You know what? Um, you know there are all kind of conspiracy theories and you know uh, theories out there like that. Um, it may be more difficult to uh, get guys, um, you know, in this area into the Hall of Fame. Maybe just because there aren't as many writers that watch the Broncos games and get to know the players. Uh, but I mean, that's just pure speculation. I have, no, you know, I have no no backup on that. I, I mean. And I would like to think that that's not the case. Steve Atwater, thanks for the time once again. And best of luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy going forward. Uh, we hope to see you in February in Minneapolis. All right, Clark, Rick, Ron, thank you guys for having me on. And, um, hey, hopefully we can have a better year next year to the Broncos. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steve, thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. That was Hall of Fame semifinalist Steve Atwater. Up next. Ron's going to ring out the old and ring in the new with our last two-minute drill of 2017. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. And now, for the last time this year... That's the two-minute drill. Yep, it's the two-minute drill. Ronnie, take us into 2018, will you? Gentlemen... Who the hell is Taylor Heineke, and does he own a beer distributorship? <laughs> I don't know who he is, but I do like the beer he imports. Like Steve McNair, Brian Westbrook, Tony Romo, Jimmy Caroppolo, he's a past winner of the Walter Payton Award as the best player in Division One. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Bring in the facts. Should the, Houston, the <laughs> should the Houston Texans retain friend of the show Billy O'Brien? Better question is, should Billy O'Brien retain the Houston Texans? <laughs> 
The man who won consecutive division titles in 2015 16 with no quarterback, he deserves a shot with a quarterback, and he'll get that in 2018 with Deshaun Watson. What is Mike Sherman doing at 63, coaching the Montreal Alouettes? Getting good seats to bad Habs games. A couple years of coaching high school football, Massachusetts would chase anyone to Canada. <laughs> Kansas City's won three straight. Are they really back? That's the Chargers. Their defensive backs are treated for wins here after chasing their receivers. The Patriots hope so. I'm sure Bill Belichick and Tom Brady like another crack at the Chiefs this January. Can the Pittsburgh Steelers survive a trip to Foxborough next month? Yes, but only if Tom Brady gets stuck in traffic. They can survive the trip. Just not sure they can survive the game. <laughs> well, they have two. Count them two playoff teams this year. No, USC isn't good enough. If you're talking Dodgers and Rams, then yes. <laughs> Who is 2017's true MVP? Russell Wilson does more with less. Todd Gurley, LA's best running back since Eric Dickerson. How many more times will the NFL have to change its concussion safety protocol before it's safe to play football without a concussion? Not enough times. Reason? Football will never be safe. At least 22. That would allow doctors to check every player after every play. I could do former head of officials say Kelvin Benjamin's catch against the Patriots was a touchdown, and the present ones say the opposite. Because the present one had a clue once, but it died of loneliness. There's a new sheriff in town, and I think he's blind. Do the words clear and obvious mean something different to replay officials than they do to dictionary writers? Speaking on behalf of millennials, what's a dictionary? Maybe the replay officials have been mistakenly reading the book of antonyms. <laughs> That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank LeRoy Butler, Steve Atwater, and Jay Bubba Paris for joining us. Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, www.talkofamenetwork.com, or dial us up on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Happy New Year, everyone.